our journey and God's word as we uh, look at the descendants of the life of uh, Abraham, his descendants. And uh, if you've not been with us, we're in the life of Joseph right now. Uh, today we're in chapter 42. We'll be covering it in its entirety. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and uh, pull up whatever device you use to, to, to look at scripture, whether that's a Bible or you use your phone or something, you can do that. We're in Genesis 42. And then once you have that and you're in that place, I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for God's word. And we're going to read the chapter in its entirety. And then we'll look at a few things um, from this chapter. Genesis chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put all together, put them all together in custody for three, three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may will be verified and you shall not die and they did so then they said to one another another in truth we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen that is why this distress has come upon us and Reuben answered them did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, 
for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain, with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And this, at this their hearts failed them, for they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather in this place and to look at your word and think about uh, some things from it that might apply to our lives and how we might live in light of you. Uh, Lord, I confess that I come not to impress people, but Lord, to speak uh, the truth of your word on behalf of you as a representative, just one of your many representatives that you use uh, in this local church and in other ones. And Lord, I recognize and I acknowledge the presence, uh, Lord Jesus, that you walk among the churches. You are observing uh, what's going on and what's happening, uh, and you're taking notes. Uh, you know our works and what we do. And so I ask that, uh, Lord, that you would help me to, to preach by your spirit. Uh, just give me clarity of speech, and then you do the work in the people's hearts and minds. You know what they need. Help them to hear what they need to hear from you, and you direct their lives. May they give all the praise, glory, and honor solely and only to you if they are ministered to through this message. And Lord, we pray that you're honored today. We want to be pleasing in you, in your sight. Would you help us to do that now? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so on Friday morning, I had the chance to have breakfast with a friend that I had not had uh, breakfast with in a, a number of months. And so we had a chance to get together and catch up. And as we were catching up, part of our conversation covered the topic of driving. 
And the reason why we ended up covering the topic and, uh, of driving was because uh, one of his children uh, had now reached the age of driving. And we were talking about how that would change his family life, which he was excited about uh, because that would mean some good things. Uh, and so uh, as we talked about that, I, I couldn't help but reflect on my own driving experience and what happened to me. Of course, I grew up in uh, Texas, not here in Pennsylvania, so mine may be a little bit different than yours. But as I, I grew up there uh, in Texas, uh, I remember my first driving experience was by my surrogate uh, grandmother, my neighbor across the street, who kind of substituted for my grandmother because we were had to have a real close relationship with our grandparents. And so she kind of substituted in that role for me. So when I, when I came of age, uh, she decided to, to take me out uh, to teach me how to drive, and she took that upon herself. And so she took me out uh, to the back of our neighborhood at that point where I lived at. Uh, there was a cemetery at the back of the neighborhood, and so she thought that would be the best place for me to learn how to drive. And there was really two reasons that she had for that. One, there was never any traffic there. I don't know why, <laughs> but there was just never traffic there. And the second thing was that, as she said to me, I never had to worry about hurting anyone because everyone was already dead. So the cemetery was a wonderful place where I, I learned to drive. But in order to be released upon the roads of Texas, I had to pass two tests. Though I already had experience driving, the Texas didn't recognize that experience apart from something to validate it. And so I had to, when I was in high school, uh, formally go through driving education. And so the first part of driving education was a two-part course. Uh, you had a test in the middle and a test at the end in order to pass the course. So first there was just, just classroom instruction. Uh, and that was to prepare you for the written test that you would go down to the Texas Department of Transportation and you would take that on the computer. Uh, and if you were passed, you were given a permit which allowed you to participate in the second half of the class. If you didn't pass, then you would drop from the course and you had to start the course all over again. So it was a real big thing to make sure you studied and then you take it, and I passed the first part. And then the, the second part was that you had a, a, a licensed instructor by the state of Texas who took you out on, in, a, in a team of drivers, and you would be out for hours every day after school for weeks, getting experience because, you know, each one of us had to have experience behind the wheel, so we would sit in the car. So a couple of us would drive, and we'd all be there watching and learning, and we would do that. And at the end, we all had to have a, a test by the driving instructor who had been instructing us, and now was uh, here. We're going to see if you've grasped what I've been trying to teach you. And so all of us were put to the test. And thankfully, I passed that test. I know probably some of you are thinking about people right now who you think should not have been licensed and given a license on the road. <laughs> but nevertheless, they have one, or at least they're driving without one, uh, unrecognized by the state of Pennsylvania. And that may be why we have problems on the road. Um, but nevertheless, in any case, the reality is in order, if you, in order for us to get a driver's license, whether in the state of Texas or here in Pennsylvania, there's a reality that you have to pass some tests. But, but tests are not just uh, uh, are limited to the field of driving. Now, I ran into an article this week by a lady by the name of Naveena uh, Ritchie. Uh, she talked about there are at least, she categorized the three types of tests that we encounter in life. She said, you know, there are diagnostic tests that we have, and that would be like as if uh, for some of you who wear glasses or contacts or things like that, you know, you have an eye exam. Or for some of us, you, we've had medical exams. And what those tests do is reveal to us something about our condition of health. And we appreciate those tests. Whether we like the results or not, we appreciate because they give us something that's about what's going on in our lives. And then she said there's educational tests. And I mean, as soon as you start school in elementary, it's not long before you run into one of these either a pop quiz or some form of test. And whether you're in elementary all the way through, as Pastor Mike stated here earlier, uh, if you went through your doctoral program, there are exams 
that must be passed. Uh, I remember when, we, uh, when I started Dallas Seminary, when we started out to, to enter seminary, there was an exam at the front end to test Bible knowledge, church history, theology. And then before I was able or released to graduate, we had that same exam again to test to see if we actually had learned something and then cumulatively to look at uh, students as a whole and to gather whether or not the institution was fulfilling its role in being able to educate people in these topics. I remember my sister, before she became a lawyer, she had to sit for the bar exam. My dad, before he became an accountant, he had to sit for an exam. And so uh, there, there's these types of things that, that come on, educational tests. And then there's, oh, I'm sorry, certification tests, which really those last two had fallen in that. Uh, certification types of tests that happen, that in fields of work, like my sister and my dad, there, there are some type tests we have to take in order to be licensed to operate in a specific field. Uh, sometimes electricians, plumbers, there are different types of tests. Engineers have to take them uh, and, and in order to be able to operate in that field. And so you have to take certification tests. So, so one of the things we realize about life is that tests are just part of life. But that's not just true in the earthly realm. That also has to do with our spiritual lives as well. Tests are part of our journey in our faith walk with God. And so today I just want to focus on that aspect of our faith walk and I'm going to, to give you three ideas that are related from the text that we have. And then at the end, hopefully, you'll get the point of where I'm trying to go. So let me raise the first idea for you. It's going to be in the text. We're going to see it uh, in the interaction between Joseph and now what has been for him his long-lost brothers. But, but first, let me just bring us back to where we are in the light of Joseph's life. So this week, the narrator drops us down, not in Egypt, but we're in Canaan, and we're at Jacob's household. Uh, and we, we come to, to find out that uh, some things have, have, have transpired in this last 20 years, because now in this text, it's been 20 years since the event of that faked death of Joseph. And we find out that things are not going well. Why are things not going well? Because the famine that we have heard about, uh, that is now we've, we've entered into that period of famine, uh, is not just isolated to Egypt. But, but it is spread and it's impacting other surrounding areas to Egypt. And, and one of those areas happens to be the land of Canaan, in which Jacob and his family are a part. And uh, they have now are, are suffering because their resources are depleted. Now, an interesting observation here, just for you to know, is, is that I, I would like you to observe the fact that these are God's chosen people that we're looking at. God's been working with this family since Abraham. These are God's elect people, and yet they're suffering just like everyone else. And God hasn't even thought it necessary to tell his chosen people about the famine or what was going on in Egypt or what was going on with Joseph. These are his people, and yet he decides that for whatever reason that it's not beneficial for them to know what he's doing in the world, but yet they live through the experience, through this crisis, just like everyone else. Well, as we look at the text, we realize that news is spread and there is grain in Egypt. But we find that these grown boys, are now really grown men of Jacob, these, these ten older sons, seem to be twiddling their thumbs, at least from the way the text presents it, in light of their current situation. Then They're not putting two and two together. So good old dad decides to be a father again and step in and help them put things together in a way. And so it's almost as if he just kind of recounts the facts uh, and says, oh, come on, guys. I mean, this ought to be pretty obvious here. So, you know, it's, it, look at this. Just look at the resources. Our resources are depleted. 
Uh, Egypt has grain. You have money, which is silver in this case. It would seem like the obvious thing to do is when your refrigerator is empty and you have money and there's a place that has food, you go buy food and bring it back. Why are y'all sitting around just looking at each other? Like, come on, come on, boys, come on, let me, let, you're all grown now. You should have figured this out. And sometimes that, that is the case. Even with grown children, we need a little help from our parents to guide us, even though we're grown. Now, to kind of put things in perspective, this would be like as if we had a, a, a shortage of food here in our stores here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And, and I told you, I said, hey, there's good news that there's food, and it's at Costco. And that's all you got to do is go to Costco. But the Costco you got to go to is in Columbus, Ohio. And oh, yes, because there's a gas shortage, you're going to have to walk. That's the kind of trip that these guys are about to have to make. So you can, you can guess that this is a, a somewhat a lengthy endeavor to get food. But, but if you're starving or if you're about to starve, you realize that this is a necessary trip. But as we see the, the, the picture unfold, we realize that not all of the boys make the trip. There's one that's kept back. It's the youngest son. It's Benjamin. And the reason why he's kept back is because he has become the substitute in Jacob's heart for Joseph. What has happened in that event of this fake death, because from, jo from Jacob's perspective, Joseph is dead. He's lost his favorite son. And it seems like that after these 20-something years, whatever that deep gash is that was in his hole, his heart had that hole in his heart has never, ever healed. And so he's protective. He's protective because this is the second son of his favorite wife. He lost his favorite wife. He's lost his favorite son, and he's only got one love. And what do you do when you're afraid? Well, you often become protective. So he says, no, 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 no. The rest of you who, at least in my opinion, might be expendable, you can go. <laughs> but this boy, he's not going anywhere. He's staying right here. And although Benjamin is now in his early 20s, at least from Jacob's perspective, this is not a risk that he's willing to take. And so he will not trust again. He will not release his son. And so after the 10 uh, elder men, the sons uh, went. And, you know, some time later, I don't know, week, month has passed by. And they finally arrived down in Egypt to buy grain. And it's interesting the way the events play out. Because remember now, uh, as we look at some of the evidence in the text, there are cities, plural, in Egypt where grain is being stored. Joseph is the vizier. He oversees all these cities and all of the workers who are there. And so Joseph could be, for whatever reason, in any number of cities doing business that day. Uh, he, he's, a, he's, he's the main guy. But it, it so happens that it works out that the city that the brothers end up at is the city that Joseph's at, and he's working that day watching what's happening. And there are foreigners coming from everywhere because they've heard there's grain in Egypt. And in the line of foreign affairs who, for those who want to buy grain, guess who Joseph sees? There's 10 guys that look real familiar to him. Now, they don't know who he is because Joseph has fully brought on the Egyptian look. And it's been 20 years. The last time they saw him, he was 17. Now he's in his late 30s, fully grown. And he looks totally Egyptian. And not only does he look Egyptian, but he's speaking only Egyptian. Right. And so so that, that's kind of the idea. So they don't know what's going on. And, and we, we, we see a, an unfolding of events here that draw our minds back to earlier chapters of Genesis. What do they do? What is customary when you stand before royal authority in the land where that's the custom? You get down on the ground and you bow your face to the ground. Ten men bowed down before Joseph 
Doesn't that sound familiar to you? See, when he was 17 years old, remember when he had that first dream? He said, I, I had this dream last night, and I was in the field. My sheave stood up, and your sheaves all bowed down. And the brothers were like, oh, you ever going to rule over us? But here we are, 20-something years later, and where are the brothers? Down on the ground before Joseph. Just what the dream had predicted is now taking place. But we find that Joseph is not so warm in the welcoming party. And we might could have some reasons why he's not warm. Instead, Joseph decides to go down a different route in his interaction with his 10 older brothers. And he decides, because he has a little power, at least it seems like, that he's going to, to do something with them. And he says, you know what? I think you guys are spies. Yep. That's what you guys are here for. And this was not unheard of because this was one of the means by which other nations would spy on you. What they would do is hire merchants who could move freely among the land because they didn't look like ready spies. And merchants, because they did business, they could report on what was going on in the land, where were military things and what was going on, how trade and commerce was being done. And then the other nation, they could bring that information back and then they could get paid and then let the, the other government know what was going on so they could prepare for a military invasion. And so this was not unheard of. So Joseph simply says, I think because you're an outsider, you might be a spy. And the brothers are like, no, Joseph, come on. I mean, they don't even know it's him. They're just like, we, we're, not, we're not spies. We're good guys. And he's like, no, y'all are spies. Yeah, y'all are spies. I, I know what's really going on here. But that brings me to the first point, and this is why I want to reread some of the text because it, it highlights the first point, some key verses here, and this is going to lead us to the first idea. Verse 15, uh, by this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Joseph arranges a test for his brothers. What might be behind his behavior, there are probably several things that's going on emotionally for Joseph as he is, for the first time in over 20 years, staring his brothers face to face. And yet he's in the position of advantage, for he has knowledge that they do not have. He knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. And one of the things, at least, that Joseph wants to know amongst trying to get information about the family is that Joseph wants to figure out, has his brothers changed in the last 20 years? Or are they the same guys who put him in the pit those 20 years ago and left him and sold him into slavery? And that brings me to the first idea in the text that I want to raise, and it's simply this. Tests are designed to reveal things about us. Tests are designed to reveal things about us. Think about the test in your own life, uh, whether you've done one of those categories, a diagnostic test, an educational test, or a certification test. And just think about what happened after you took that test. Perhaps you had a certain view about yourself that you thought, what you knew, but then on the other side of the test, you found out where you really were at. Whether that was to a good or to the, the ill. Perhaps the, it revealed how much knowledge you really had or whether you were really as competent as you thought you were in that area. Or perhaps it revealed that you still needed some development. So when I was working uh, in seminary, when I first started off, I started off as a mentor for uh, upper elementary school boys, fourth and fifth grade boys. Uh, and part of my job was not only to speak in their life and give life guidance advice, uh, we couldn't really talk about Jesus in the school environment, but give 
uh, scriptural-based advice, wisdom based on scripture, but also was to help them with uh, work activities, uh, their schoolwork, whether that be math, English, or whatever was going on, and try to be a positive role model in their lives. One of the conversations that uh, frequently came up uh, in our time together because they seemed to all be fascinated with basketball was how skilled they were on the court. Now, I would ask some diagnostic questions to find out whether there might be some truth to this or not. So I would ask questions like, so do you play on a team? No. Okay. Uh, have you played on a team in the past? No. Uh, have you had an opportunity to train playing basketball? No. Uh, do you go out and practice after school or play regularly with your friends? Sometimes, not often. Okay, all right. So then what I did was when the, when the war weather warmed up and I had a chance to take them out, uh, I would take them sometimes out to the basketball court to, to ascertain whether or not they really could do what they said they could do. And so I would just simply stand on the side and put the ball in their hands and say, I want you to stand right here and take some shots for me. And so I got a chance to put them to the test. And what I found out is that their subjective perception about their skills came crashing down when they met objective reality. And then I found out that they weren't uh, as skilled as they thought, although all of them swore that they were ready for the NBA. <laughs> but but when, when you're put to the test, it has a way of revealing truth about who you are. And that's exactly what Joseph is trying to do. Joseph wants to reveal the truth about the character of his brothers. That's the first idea. Test reveals something about you, which prepares us for the second idea. And we see the second idea arise as the brothers interpret the circumstances that they're facing or dealing with now uh, in, in light of what's happening to them. Let's pick up at verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul, that he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So in this text, at least, they recall the heinous treatment of their brother. And for the first time, we get a glimpse of something we did not see in the previous text when all these events were transpiring. We find out that while Joseph was in the pit, while he was there waiting for what he did not know was going to be his future, he was crying out to his brothers. Your family member is in a place of distress, and he is crying, asking you to save him. That's enough. I'm tired now. Please let me out. Help me. Please, somebody, get me out of here. Somebody save me. Your own blood is crying for you to save them, and you do nothing. They're immediately flooded with the images of what happens. And they say to themselves, that's why this is happening to us. It's payback for what we did to our brother so many years ago. But what I want you to notice is who they attribute these events to. For that, we need to go back to the text, verse 26. We'll pick up there and you'll see it. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened the his sack and gave it to his donkey fodder at the lodging place. He saw his money in the mouth of his sack and he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And as they're at this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, notice, 
What is this that God has done to others, to us? The brothers view the distressing events, I think, from a right perspective. Not necessarily that it's all of interpretation is right, but I think they get the main idea right. That behind the events of human circumstances, there's an invisible hand guiding the world to achieve his purposes. They recognize that God is behind this. Simply recall the facts, and I think they're right. Who sent the famine? God did. Who put Joseph in power? God did. Who decided that although he had this knowledge, he would not share it with them? God did. Because God intended for them to find themselves in this situation. See, it's not just Joseph who's testing them. God is also testing them. And because of this reality, because that's the first idea, tests reveal something about you, God tests people. He does that because tests reveal things about us. Let me offer you a few examples from Scripture. So at the beginning of the series, we talked about Abraham and his walk with God. And at the culmination of his walk, after God had given him enough training experience, God tested Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac. When the people of Israel, after God had rescued them and they had seen his mighty deeds, God tested them in the wilderness. Let me read that for you, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. After he allowed them to, to have conquest in the land and they were able to establish themselves as a nation, God put them to the test. How did, he do, how did he do that? He did not allow Joshua to drive out all of the foreign nations. Instead, God said, no, I'm going to leave some because I'm going to use them to test you. And that's one of the ways I'm going to do it. He did it uh, with Hezekiah, who was king. And the way that he did it was to not show up when Hezekiah needed him. God said, I'm going to leave you by yourself, and then I'm going to see what you're going to do, and this will be a test. Let me show you that in Chronicles. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. God even tested Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then, the, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, there are out, different outcomes that could happen. doesn't mean just because you're tested that things are going to go well. For Abraham, it went well. He passed the test. Jesus, of course, passed his test with outstanding colors. But Hezekiah in Israel on many occasions failed when God put them to the test. And as we look at these passages and the many others that talk about God's testing of individuals, we come to find out that God has a variety of tests that he uses when it comes to human beings. Sometimes God tests people by taking away that which they value deeply. Sometimes God tests people by giving them abundance. Others, he tests them by allowing them to suffer lack in their lives. Sometimes Israel would be tested that God would be the one behind the false prophet that would show up in Israel. And God would send a false prophet to test them. 
Sometimes God will, in our day, allow you to run into teachers who tell you what you want to hear so that you might be tested. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes God puts you in the hand of the enemy so that Satan can tempt you. And in that is a test. Sometimes God uses the hardships of life, and these are just a few of the tools that God uses when he wants to test the hearts of men. I'm not sure what you're experiencing in life right now. Perhaps as you're thinking about this, your mind has already run to a specific situation. And whatever that situation is in your mind right now that you're contemplating about your life, the reality is it might just be a test from God. Now, you might also be wondering in light of that, if God really does test people, at least as the scripture seems to evidence he does, then why is God doing it? Scholar D.A. Carson, I think, sums it up well when he said this. Some tests spring out of God's judicial discipline of sin previously committed by people. That's what we see in the book of Judges, why he left the nations. They had committed a sin, and so God put them to the test. In any case, the testing inevitably concerns obedience and faithfulness of those who are being tested. And it presupposes their accountability for such virtues. God tests people to reveal what's in their hearts, whether or not there is faithfulness to him or not. Now, the the good thing is that we get a a glimpse of God's motives and why he tests. It's different than Satan's motives. We'll see that. Let me show you to the text, Deuteronomy chapter 8, but we'll drop down to verse 16. When the who is here, it's referring to God. Fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you. Notice what the text ends with, to do you good in the end. God tests because his motives are good. He wants to build up faith. He wants to see that you're going to, to pass the test and come out on the other side as demonstrating faithfulness to him. Why is he doing this in the brother's lives? Because he wants to bring reconciliation in the family. God's purpose is a good purpose, and he tests you for good reasons. Satan, on the other hand, has very different goals in mind. That brings me to the third and final idea. Because tests reveal reveal something about us, God then puts people to the test. And if that is the case, then we have to ask, how do we pass the test that God gives. And I believe Joseph in the text points the way for how we should pass the test that God gives. Let's return to Genesis chapter 42. We'll pick up at verse 17. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother here to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, it's not clear in the text why Joseph puts them in prison. Perhaps Joseph wants to give them a taste of their own medicine. Or perhaps he wanted to remind them about the events that had happened to him, which it did accomplish that, for they remember exactly what they had done. But what's important in this text is that we realize that Joseph's actions are tempered by something. When Joseph first lays out the plan to them, his initial plan before he puts them in custody is to send one brother back to get the youngest brothers and to keep all the brothers in prison. 
But after three days, there's something that happens to Joseph that causes him to release the many and only keep the one. So that he able enables to, so they're enabled to be able to help their family. You see it at the end of verse 18. Notice the text says, Joseph says, For I fear God. The fear of God had changed his heart so that he had moved into a different position. And we've seen some admirable qualities in Joseph's life so far. Joseph in his late 20s, uh, he, he displayed integrity as he was offered. Uh, Potiphar's wife and a, an illicit affair with her. Joseph, and, and when he's 30 years old, he displays humility uh, in the face of power as he stands before Pharaoh. And when many would take uh, credit for themselves, he takes no credit, gives all the credit to God. And now here he is in his late 30s, and he seeks to help those who had hurt him in the past. And he does it because he fears God. Joseph is in the place of power. He has the ability, and he almost, you could say, has the right to inflict pain and suffering upon his brothers for what he suffered those 13 years. But what does he do? He responds in a different way, though he has the power to do it. He seeks to help and not hurt. Why does he do it? Because of the fear of God. And that's the answer to the third question and the third idea. It is that fearing God will help you pass God's test. Fearing God will help you pass God's test. Other voices in Scripture encourage us to fear God. At the, book, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the one who has framed up uh, for his son the, the, the audience with the, with the preacher, the, the wise man, where he hears a, a different perspective on life, the, what is called the under-the-sun perspective. Uh, after the, he hears all the matter has been done by the, the teacher who is wise, the father comes back in and says, let me, let me sum it up for you, and, and let me tell you what I want you to get out of this son. And this is what he says at the end of the book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. But this is the whole duty of man. This is not just an Old Testament idea, but Paul picks this up when he talks to believers who are in a unique situation where they're, where they're really slaves and how they ought to live out their Christianity as being a slave. And notice what he says to them. Bond service, really slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart. Notice how he ends it. Fearing the Lord. Not only does this come up uh, and encouraged by other followers of God in Scripture, but God himself desires this from those who would be his followers. We see this when, when he encounters Israel, as Moses says. Notice what he says, Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that, you may fear, that the fear of him may be before, before you, that you may not sin. God himself is speaking about this, about his people. Notice what he says as he thinks about the future and knows what's going to happen to Israel. But notice what his, his yearning is for his people when he speaks in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. When we look at the Bible and we look at those who fear God versus those who do not fear God, those who fear God are always painted in a positive light versus those who do not fear God are always painted in a negative light. Let me show you one of those passages out of Psalm, Psalm 111, verse 10, where it's painted in a positive light. 
It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, I know as soon as I raised the idea and concept of the fear of the Lord, some of you had a knee-jerk reaction. Because in your mind, there's no way that fear and love go together about the same person. For you, you thought to yourself, there's no way that I'm going to fear you and love you. Either I fear you or I love you, but I don't do both. But not so with God. So what is a biblical perspective on the fear of God? Well, the concept is a huge concept. It's repeated numerous times throughout Scripture. So I'm going to narrow it down to one specific aspect. I'm not going to cover all of the fear of God, but I'm going to cover this specific aspect. What is it that God is looking for from his people when he wants them to fear him? I believe Deuteronomy chapter 6 points the direction. Notice what the text says, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. One Bible study from uh, Faith Life summed it up this way. Fearing God is an important concept in the Old Testament. While fear at times is used to describe terror and dread, and there it is when it talks about Adam, when God was coming, the Old Testament's use often has to do with awe or reverence as it pertains to God. The fear of God is expressed in loyalty to him, faithfulness to his covenant. Those who fear God exhibit trust in him and obedience to his commands. And according to the Old Testament, those who fear God are the ones who obtain his protection, his wisdom, and his blessing. Fear of God is even linked with the worship of God in Psalms, as well as the just treatment of others in the book of Leviticus. See, to fear God is to have a proper response to his holiness. We see that in the book of Isaiah. See, the fear of God often has to do with it's associated in the text with obedience and faithfulness to God. They're often paired together. Now, to kind of get our minds around this, uh, I like the way R.C. Sproul, as he looked at Martin Luther, as he struggled with this, uh, his definitions of how he described two, two types of fear. He had two categories that he used to help him to, to distinguish between what kind of fear God is looking for. He had what he called servile fear and then filial fear, which came from the Latin, which has to do with family. So first, servile fear. And Luther kind of talked about this idea for him. Uh, it was the kind of fear that a prisoner has who's in a torture chamber or who's being uh, afflicted by a tormentor, a jailer, or an executioner. Uh, it, it's a dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by clear and present danger that is represented by another person. It's the kind of fear that a slave has, uh, but that they would have at the, the, the malicious hands of a slave master who would come and whip or torment them, something very familiar in their world. Uh, it's this po posture of servitude that fears a malevolent owner. Th that's servile fear. But filial fear, on the other hand, is the fear that a child has for his father, in this regard, uh, of a child who is tremendously respecting his father and loves his father or mother and who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear or anxiety of, of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid that his parents are going to torture him or even punish him, but because he's afraid of displeasing them. Because in that child's world, the parents, they're the source of security and love. 
And I believe that when we, we, we there's a favorite scripture that, that Christians like to, to quote. It's 1 John 4, 18. It says that perfect love casts out fear. I believe it's that servile fear is what John is getting at. It's that type of fear that perfect love casts out, but not the filial fear. That's the kind of fear that he's, he's looking for. One writer, Lois Teverberg, she sums it up well when she says this, the fear of the Lord of these passages is all filled love of God that allows us to grow in intimate knowledge of him. It teaches us how to live, to live and reassures us of God's power and guidance. It gives us reverence for his will that keeps us from getting caught in the sins that destroy our relationships and our lives. I believe that the filial fear is the path, the right direction, at least to some degree, that is the kind of fear that is necessary for us if we're going to pass God's test. Now, I'm not sure what type of situation you're facing in your life. Your test may be one in your marriage. Maybe it's a troublesome spouse. Maybe it's the co-workers on your job. Maybe it's your neighborhood and the people that live there. Maybe it's a personal matter that God is using to test you. Or perhaps God is testing you because he's allowed all of your needs to be met. And he's curious to see what will you do now with what you've been given. Will you fear the Lord when your needs are met? Well, what does it look like in a life as I come to a conclusion for a person who fears God as it plays out? Louis Teverberg goes on to tell us this, this story uh, from Jewish literature that was a popular story about a rabbi and a traveler. And so the rabbi was on the road and he was walking down the street. And as he was making his way down the street, uh, a traveler came along and recognized the rabbi and said to the rabbi, Rabbi, why are you walking? Why don't you ride with me? And so they got on together and the rabbi and the traveler made their way down the road. And as they were making their way down the road in the horse-drawn carriage, uh, the, the, the farmer, the, the traveler noticed that there was a farm off to the left that was not fenced. And the vegetables had, had ripened in the season and there was no one around. So he stopped the, the cart and he told the rabbi, hey, I just need you to be the lookout. Tell me if you see anybody coming. I'm going to go over here and pick a few of these things and put them in my wagon. So the traveler made his way over into the bushes. Maybe if you live in California, you might be tempted to do that. Uh, but anyway, so he made his way over there, and he started to pick a few things up that he was going to put back in the wagon. And just as he was starting to, to pick things up that was not his, but there was no one around, the rabbi started screaming out, We've been seen! We've been seen! The man, frightened, he was terrified, dropped the vegetables in his hand, ran back and jumped on the cart, and he started looking around to see who had noticed him, and there was no one. So he turned to the rabbi and he said, Rabbi, I don't see anybody. Who did you see? The rabbi simply took his hand, pointed it up to heaven, and he said to the traveler, God is watching. God is always watching. That's what it means when you fear God in your life. How, how do you do this? I believe Paul, and there's any number of texts that we could go to, but let me quote one from Galatians. I believe this is the answer to that. Paul said this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, to live in the fear of God is to live with faith in the Son. And that then will guide you in how you live your life. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that we would fear you. 
And that, as Paul said in Philippians, right after the text that Pastor Mike just read this morning, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, we desire to honor you. We desire to please you. We desire to see you glorified by our lives, just as Jesus did. And we know that, Lord, there are going to be tests in our life. Some in this room may be in a test that you have divinely sent to them. Help them to recognize it and help them to realize that the only way they're going to pass this test is by fearing you. We pray that you would do that. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you stand?